Open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and if the Lord will bless us, we shall finish this chapter this morning, covering verses 26 through 39, that deal with Paul's application and exhortation to duty, to faithfulness, to perseverance on the part of the Hebrews as they were facing great persecution and great temptation to apostatize and return to the old covenant, return to that system of religion Moses established, the Pharisees and the rabbis corrupted, and that preceded the gospel of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, I'd like to first of all read verses 26 through 31. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Stand with me, and let's bow our heads in prayer. O Lord our God, we know that you did it first. Call Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans and made of him a great nation, O Lord, and blessed it, and called them your people. O Lord, you gave them your commandments and precepts to follow, and promised them great blessings if they would do so. You sent your prophets and judges and scribes to teach them in the law of the Lord that they might keep thy ways. You threatened them, O Lord, that if they were to depart, from your commandments and to seek after other gods you would destroy them and scatter them among all nations and make them a byword and a proverb. O Lord, they forsook thee. They followed in the steps of their fathers, persecuted and killed the prophets that came to them and evilly entreated them. O Lord, and then you sent your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the minister of the circumcision. You sent him to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And O Lord, a few heard, but most of them railed on him, blasphemed against him, accused him of all sorts of personal problems and sins, and then crucified him on a cross. And, O oh Lord, we read that upon that nation 
you brought forth all the vengeance that had been prophesied and promised in your word, and that you destroyed those murderers miserably. And it all came to pass within 40 years of the death of your son. Heavenly Father, grant that as we read and study this book of Hebrews, your people today, those that were once called the uncircumcision, but who have now been made the circumcision by the circumcision of Christ, that those Gentiles might take heed from the lesson given to the Hebrews that we ourselves not sin willfully, nor neglect, nor let slip, nor fall away, nor depart from the things that we have heard, lest some certain judgment and fiery indignation befall us also. For it is a fearful thing to fall in to the living hands of the Almighty God. O Lord, bless us this day to learn a further section of Thy Word, to be convicted by the force that it brings to bear even upon Gentiles, and that we might hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. O Lord, grant that we shall live by faith and that we shall be prepared for next Lord's Day to consider those great examples of faith and that we might be provoked to be men of faith and women of faith and children of faith in this evil day as we suffer affliction and persecution in some ways similar to those early Hebrew Christians. We ask all of these things and blessing to hear and blessing to preach through the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of our God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 10 is a letter not written to a church as it is written to a nation. It is a letter written to Hebrew Christians known by their nationality, not known by the congregation where they assembled. They were all to assemble in their respective congregations, but the Hebrews were scattered far and wide, especially after Saul of Tarsus scattered them from the city of Jerusalem. This is a nationalistic letter written to a nation, and we must always keep that in our mind as we study this book if we're to properly understand how it was first received, how Paul intended it, why the Holy Spirit inspired it. And though we apply it to the Hebrews, to believing Jews, it brings force, pressure, and obligation to bear on Gentiles, for we have been blessed not with the old covenant, but we have been blessed with the new covenant. And if we shall neglect these things, what kind of judgment will God bring on us? And has He not done so in most of those so-called Christian churches that claim to have the new covenant? They have been judged with darkness and ignorance. And let us pray that God will spare us from something similar. Hebrews 1.1 to Hebrews 10.18 is the doctrinal instruction that Paul gives of comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament. There is a new religion brought in by John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, and his apostles far superior to the religion brought in by Moses, the prophets, and given by the disposition of angels. The, the religion of Jesus Christ, Christianity, 
the Old Testament could in no way be called Christianity. They didn't know of Christ, nor did they know Christ. We are talking about Christianity compared to the religion of the Jews. As Paul said, he was once a member and a sect of the Jews' religion, the Pharisees. But beginning at verse 19, the apostle, as he often does, brings all that doctrinal instruction to a conclusion and then makes the application of why we ought to be provoked and moved and motivated to great service. The first point he made, in which we covered last Sunday, is contained in verses 19 through 22, where Paul summarizes, Brethren, since we have a great high priest in heaven that opens up personal religion with God, let us draw near to that God, in verse 22, with full assurance of faith. There's no reason for doubting. There's no need to wonder, wouldn't that old covenant yet help me? We don't need any of that. We may have full assurance of faith and we may draw near to God in personal religion. Verse 22. Our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience by the knowledge of the sprinkling of Christ's blood. Our bodies have been washed with pure water in that great answer of the purged conscience called baptism, whereby we give an answer to God for what He has done for us and make public profession of our faith in Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Let us draw near. First application. Second application. Verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. After establishing personal religion, after falling on your knees and drawing near to God and seeking after God with your whole heart, it is then your duty to encourage, to provoke, to promote, to rebuke and to warn others that they too will draw nigh to God and hold fast their profession. We have 12 that we know of in this congregation that are no longer members of this body. They did no longer hold fast their profession of faith without wavering. Don't sit here this morning and think that you're beyond that. We all know of many that have heard the truth and have wavered. And not only wavered, they have departed into their own way instead of remaining unwavering in the way of the Lord. And brethren, it hasn't even got rough yet. If men and women are departing today when it's not even rough, what is going to happen in a dry tree? That's how the Savior put it. The Savior once said over in the book of Luke, How can men not follow? How can men not believe? How can men reject in a green tree? What are they going to do in a dry when it gets rough? Sometimes there's a perverse part of my nature, and I believe it's scriptural, in begging and wishing for the judgment of God to be a little more manifest in our generation that we'd find out who truly loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I remember as a boy, 
hearing a man that came from Korea who had been a missionary in Korea and who described what the Chinese Communists and the North Koreans did to Bible-believing churches when they overran that nation and how they approached this one little small church in the country and painted a cross on the pavement in front of that little church. And then they set up a machine gun on a tripod outside that church facing that cross. And the church was told anyone who would come out that door and wipe their feet on the cross painted in the pavement could go free. Anyone that came out of that church and stepped around the cross and would not wipe their feet on it would be shot. And there were a couple of men that went out that door and stepped on that cross and were not shot. And a young girl came to that door and went out that door and stepped on the cross and was the first one to be shot and the rest followed her. I remember hearing that as a young boy from a man who had been there. That's one story of many that could be told. What would you do? You say, well, couldn't God overlook the fact if I just wiped my feet in a cross on the pavement? Remember, that cross was on the pavement to make a point. Were you denying the Lord Jesus Christ? What would you do? You know, I think an invitational hymn like a 7.62 machine gun might get some true believers to come forward if you can follow my analogy. That would separate the men from the boys real fast. Well, in the early days of the church, God granted them such a privilege, if it can be called a privilege. There was tremendous persecution. And we're going to read about it here in these verses. And these Jews were tempted to fall away from that religion that was causing them so much trouble and go back and be a member of the Jews' religion. The Jews' religion was well accepted by the Roman Empire as long as the Jews were obedient. Why, remember, it was Herod that built their temple. Remember, it was Cornelius a centurion that had done much for the Jews. Remember, it was another centurion in the days of Christ himself that had done much for the Jews and built them a synagogue. The Romans allowed the Jews' religion, but the Romans didn't like Christianity because Christianity affirmed that there was one higher than Caesar, and that was Christ, another king. So as we come to this passage, and as we remember the words from last Sunday, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Think about what that means. That means walking out that door and not stepping on that Christ and grinning for the cause of Christ as they shoot you and bless you with an early transportation to heaven and eternal glory. But can we always look at it that way? We can, brethren, if we keep our feet grounded in the Word of God, if we draw nigh to God with full assurance of faith, and if we exhort one another daily, 
to hold our professions. It was a little girl that provoked some love and some good works in that particular illustration, wasn't it? It was a little girl that provoked because she went out there and she was not going to step on the cross which was depicting her Savior in that particular situation. She provoked to love and to good works, which is what we are to do. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We don't even know what this is like. You know, we have a tough time not listening to the music of the world, not watching the television programming of the world, avoiding the friends of this world. And I hear complaints about, well, we can't be too separate. We can't deny our children too much. We can't deny ourselves too much. How pitiful. I mean, milk toast. Milk toast and effeminate Christianity. Those words don't aptly describe the state of Christianity today. These people were losing all of their possessions and their lives were in constant danger from men like Saul of Tarsus. You say, well, it didn't last very long. Well, until about 400 A.D., it was the Roman Empire that burned Christians in Nero's garden for lights. Ever read about that? You know, take a man, slide him forcefully down on a post, and then light him in a garden. Cover him with wax and light him in a garden. Nero had his gardens lit with Christians on poles. I could tell you stories until you gagged. That is nothing. That is nothing. They put Christians... In the, in the skins of wild animals and let dogs loose in the Colosseum to worry and toss them until they died. They fed them to lions. They had them fight gladiators. And of course, a Christian wouldn't fight because it was for the cause of Christ. They drowned them. They pulled them apart on racks. They boiled them in oil. All of these things and many more. That was the Roman Empire. After the Roman Empire died, supposedly, by a wound that was fatal, it came back to life. That beast, that empire, came back to life in the form of the Roman Catholic Church. And for the next 1,200 years, persecuted Christians with the same type of atrocities for another 1,000 years. Do you realize that we are some of the most blessed saints of God that have ever lived in the history of Christianity. There are Christians in the last couple of generations that live in the Soviet Union that have suffered persecution similar to that in our day. And we live in fat America. And it's hard for us to be separate from the world. It's hard for us to hold fast the profession of our faith. We've had 12 float away under severe persecution. They didn't get it their way. How precious. These people faced death, torture, and the abuse of their families. Let me take a one-minute rabbit. When you get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you see all of Paul's emphasis on staying single, modify that chapter with the words in about verse 20. Now, about verse 27, where Paul said, For the present distress. God has always said it is good for the man not to be alone. 
Paul was not changing that except for the present distress in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Given the nature of the persecutions that were occurring, it was good not to have a wife nor children. And there's very obvious reasons for that, men, if you'll think. It's never been very exciting to watch your wives and children violated by obnoxious, demon-possessed enemies of Christ. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. He's going to show you that persecution in just a moment. But we need to assemble. The reason we assemble together and the reason those saints did, those saints did it. Guess what? They've been told if you assemble together and if we find you assembled, we're going to kill you. They still say that in the Soviet Union. You're going to be tortured. You're going to be thrown into prison. It's an unlawful assembly. They may pass such a law in this nation. But guess what? They still assemble. They still assemble in the Soviet Union, and they still assembled for 1,500 years. When we sing faith of our fathers, brethren, they held fast the profession of their faith without wavering. They sang hymns while the flames choked out their lives tied to a stake. What a glorious company. What a glorious company of witnesses that God has left even in the New Testament for us to follow. But they assembled. And the reason they assembled is expressly told us in verse 25 to exhort one another. There is strength in the encouragement we receive from others. That is the reason for the New Testament church and why they ought to get together. Paul could have written letters and had them transferred from person to person. He did write the Bible. Why didn't saints just live in their homes and read the Bible? Because by yourself it would be easy to give up the faith. But when you've got a congregation of men that are committed equally with you, and who are encouraging you, and who may be suffering the same tribulation and persecutions you are, it is a whole lot easier to hold fast the profession of your faith. That's why we assemble together. We don't assemble for entertainment. We don't assemble for any other reason. As a primary, as a primary reason, but the mutual encouragement and exhortation one of another. Preaching can be done through letters. Preaching can be done by tapes, but that would not accomplish the purpose God's ordained for the New Testament church. And the apostle goes on to say in verse 25 that we ought to exhort one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. There was a day approaching that was particularly dealing with the Hebrews. He doesn't even need to say anymore because the Hebrews have been warned and taught extensively about this day that was approaching, in the which there would be false prophets arising, in the which the love of many would be waxing cold, in the which iniquity would be abounding, in the which men and brothers and family members would be betraying one another to councils, in the which there would be tribulation the likes of which the world had never seen nor ever shall see upon any one group of people. That was the day of the destruction of the Jewish nation and Jesus plainly prophesied if he had not shortened those days it would have been too much even for the elect's sake. But for the elect's sake he did shorten those days. Now 
Do you understand at all why the emphasis in this entire book, let us hold fast the profession of our faith? There were tremendous motives for them to apostatize and go back to the Jews' religion. As ye see the day approaching, now we come to verse 26. Brethren, if Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, have given commentators trouble, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, give them equal difficulty. Listen to these words. If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Can you guess what an Arminian would do with that text? If we sin, could be any sin, to a church of Christ or a Campbellite, to a church of Christ member or a Campbellite, it might be that you take the Lord's Supper standing up because some of them are called sitters and some are standers. If you don't take the Lord's Supper standing and you're a sitter, then the standers are going to hell. If you're a stander, the sitters are going to hell. There's one cuppers and many cuppers. If you're the church of Christ, a one cupper says that all the many cuppers are going to hell. The many cuppers say the one cuppers are going to hell. Why? Because every commandment must be observed faithfully and if broken, must be confessed before death or you lose your salvation. Do they have a text that appears to argue their point? Right here. If we sin willfully, I mean, once a one-cupper has told a many-cupper he ought to use one cup, and he's received the knowledge of the truth of the one cup, and he sins willfully against it, there's nothing but certain judgment and fiery indignation awaiting him. And so the Arminian looks at this. If you sin and it's not confessed, then there is a certain judgment coming for you. And that judgment to them is the judgment of hell. Fiery indignation. And of course, the word fiery looks like the word fire, so they make it hell fire. There's the Arminian use of verses 26 and 27. It looks pretty good. If we didn't know anything else, if we didn't read anywhere else, and I sort of like the way God wrote it right here. That if one cuppers want to think many cuppers are going to hell and play such foolish little games and mock the death of Jesus Christ, let them do so. How does a Calvinist handle verses 26 and 27? The first thing a Calvinist, there's two ways. There's two categories of Calvinists. The first category of Calvinists looks at this text and says, certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation has got to be hell because it looks like fiery. So it's got to be the fires of hell. If it's the fires of hell, and we know that God's elect are not going to suffer in the fires of hell, then this text is talking about false professors that sneak into the church. You ought to see them with the words, for if we, we, if we sin willfully. You know, Arthur Pink Loved it in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 where it says, For it is impossible for those. And oh, he just wrote, he just, he got, he waxed eloquent on the word those. See, Paul isn't including himself. He's talking about another category of people. Then when you get to Hebrews chapter 10, what does Paul say? For if we. 
if we, you ought to read the difficulty this text gives to someone who forgets this lesson, that the book was written to Hebrews. If you can remember the name of the book, you will have more knowledge than commentators in the book of Hebrews. They start applying this thing to Gentiles and forget to whom this book was written. Forgetting the fact of the late day that Paul wrote this book and the near proximity of the greatest event described in the New Testament as far as judgment is concerned upon a nation. The most threatening event. I've said so many times before, I'd, I'd love for you just to read through the ways that this passage is handled by different men. That's the second approach. That's the first approach of the Calvinist. These are simply hypocrites that sneak into the church and they sin willfully, obviously, and the, and the knowledge of the truth doesn't do them any good. I don't know how they receive it, but whatever the case is, these are hypocrites. The second way the Calvinist handles this passage is to pick on that little word, if. For if we sin willfully, there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment. And the Calvinist says, now wait a minute, God's elect cannot fall into judgment the judgment here can only be the judgment of fiery damnation in hell. And since God's elect cannot fall into that, then the if is hypothetically impossible. God's just simply saying, if it can happen, you ought to be exhorting one another. But since it can't happen, exhort one another anyway. Wait a minute. I, you say you're, you're ridiculous. Follow the logic of their position. For... Paul is going to give a description of something that is the motive for exhorting one another to hold fast their profession. If the if is hypothetically impossible, why exhort? Listen, if everything's guaranteed and you can't fall into judgment, let's go home. What force do you get out of a passage like that when they do that to it? It doesn't mean a thing. The last position that can be taken is for if we sin willfully, that means simply continuing in a state of willful sin, continuing in sin. If a person continues in sin after they've received the knowledge of the truth, there is certain judgment and fiery indignation that's going to come upon them. Now that is by far the most reasonable of the four I've mentioned, but that position takes this passage out of context, denies the practical forgiveness in the blood of Christ, and does not fit the exhortation here. And I'll show you that in a moment. First of all, I want to go back to that word if. For if we sin. That word if is one of the most popular words in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Is, can a child of God neglect so great salvation? Well, it depends. Are you a Calvinist? If. That if isn't hypothetically impossible. That if is hypothetically possible. That's right. 
that if is describing what you very well could do. And the whole book is written with all these ifs traced, laced through it because that was what was likely to happen to many of these Hebrews. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The gospel of Jesus Christ spoken by the Son could be neglected and there was no escape. I maintain, brethren, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is no more difficult to understand than Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. How shall we escape? There is no escape for, letting, for neglecting or letting slip the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is the, what is the inescapable, irremediable judgment? Is it hell? Or is it God swearing against a group of people and leaving them desolate and judging their nation, burning up their city and utterly destroying those murderers? If you can put all these passages together, they're all saying the same thing. Then we come, well, look, look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have received the knowledge of the truth. I'm taking those five expressions there and matching them up with Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 6, If they shall fall away. And you know what the Calvinist does there? It's hypothetically impossible. If they shall fall away. Come over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Hebrews 12, 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, that was God at Mount Sinai, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. This is turning away. How shall we escape? Much more shall not we escape if we turn away. These ifs are hypothetically possible because this is why the apostle is writing because he was afraid of these Jewish Christians turning away, departing, falling away, letting slip, neglecting, or sinning against the knowledge of the truth. In Hebrews 10, 26. The, the sin that is here mentioned, for if we sin. Now, does that mean kicking your dog? And I am not ridiculing sin. But there is very definitely, in the Word of God, a priority of sins. And there is a great difference between kicking your dog and denying the gospel of Jesus Christ and rushing back into a false system of religion that you have been convinced is wrong. There's a great difference. For if we sin, I mean, is this sin here, looking on a woman to lust after her? Is this sin here, not loving your wife as you should? Is this sin here, not training your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Notice what it's said against. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. It is something that goes contrary to receiving the knowledge of the truth. See, these Hebrews knew the truth about those commandments before Paul came along. They had received something else from Paul and the other apostles. 
That was the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus, as the Bible puts it. The truth as it is in Jesus. The New Testament, the gospel revelation, the new form of religion of Jesus Christ they had received. The sin is set against that. It is a sin, according to this 26th verse, that there remaineth no more sacrifice for it. Now look at 1 John 2.1. 1 John 2.1. I cannot tell you how many times I've read Hebrews 10.26 and had an ungodly fear about my sins. Now, there is a fear that we ought to all have for our sins, but there is an ungodly fear also, and an ungodly fear is that there's no mercy with God. And the minute you make the 27th verse, hellfire, you've got to play games with verse 26, or you leave your soul in great jeopardy. And I didn't know how to play the games very well. And I can remember many times reading this text and being scared to death. I knew I had sinned willfully against the knowledge of the truth. I know that commandments had come to me. I knew them. I understood them. I knew they were true commandments, and I knew I had willfully sinned against them. And it says, A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation awaited me. I thank God for 1 John 2.1. My little children... These things write I unto you that ye sin not. I'm never going to preach any text that would justify or excuse your sinning. But I hope I can preach like John did here. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the sacrifice for our sins or the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For, go, come back to the first chapter. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Guess what? Every child of God has violated Hebrews 10 and verse 26 if the word sin there is just plain sin. But I read in the next verse, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let God be true. There is a sacrifice for sinning against the knowledge of the truth. Then what in the world does Hebrews 10.26 mean? Let me further prove the point. Did Peter know the truth about Jesus Christ? Did Peter once say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God? Did Peter deny Him three times with oaths and cursing? Did he meet with certain judgment and fiery indignation? Or did he meet with the forgiveness of the Lord and he was preaching Jesus Christ just a few days later? Did David know that he ought not to commit adultery with another man's wife and then murder her husband? Did David do that? Was there forgiveness for David? One's old covenant, one's new covenant. God has held out practical forgiveness for his people when they have sinned. 
what sin is under consideration in Hebrews chapter 10. It cannot be just, and I don't like using these words because I don't want someone to be confused, it is just not regular sinning. Regular sinning is, in, is considered in 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2. If any man sin, we have, not had, that is not legal forgiveness, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, because it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This sinning here is the same expression used elsewhere as letting the gospel slip, neglecting the things which we have heard, falling away, turning away, and departing from the truth. Those are all expressions found in the book of Hebrews. Paul is dealing with Hebrews who are about to deny Jesus Christ and go back to the blood of goats. Jesus Christ is no savior, a goat is. Jesus Christ is no priest, these pitiful Levites are. We don't need the Spirit of God, that great blessing of the new covenant. We can do without Him. We don't want the new covenant that Jesus Christ instituted. We love the old covenant that God made with our fathers. It is a denial of the New Testament gospel of Christ in order to go back to the Old Testament. You say, why did God put sin? Why didn't He say, for if we deny the New Testament gospel and go back to the Old Testament gospel? So that Arminians could believe you could lose your salvation. So that Calvinists could look like fools as they manipulate, pervert, and corrupt this passage. That's why he did it. He did it to test our faith in studying his word and looking at the overall context of this book and making it fit here a little, there a little, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. That's why he did it that way. If you'll compare this passage, it matches up perfectly with chapter 6, chapter 2, chapter 12. And you can see very clearly there that the sin is neglecting the things which we have heard, letting slip the gospel, turning away from God, departing from God, as we'll see later in this very chapter. It's a sin that leaves no escape but fiery judgment certain. Now what judgment can that be in verse 27? Is that hell? Can hell under any construction be forced onto verse 27? No, because of verse 29. Those that are mentioned are sanctified. And we just learned in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Anyone that is sanctified, let him sin ever so much. He is perfected forever. And there is not a certain fiery judgment of eternal damnation awaiting him. And that's why Paul includes himself in the number. For if we, he's talking about the assembly of the saints, for if we sin, and he calls them sanctified people down in verse 29, because they count the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. And the very chapter explained that sanctification as being perfect, complete, and forever. Hellfire is not in verse 27. Well, every time do you sin, does God pour down vengeance and judgment upon you every time you sin? 
You, there wouldn't be a congregation here this morning if he did that. We'd be annihilated if God had a certain judgment and fiery indignation upon us every time we sin. How many times did you sin this past week in thought, word, or deed? Omission or commission? Did he blast you? Thank God for his long-suffering. But brethren, there is one situation where his long-suffering had ended. Where did his long-suffering end? How long had he held it out to them? Oh, give or take 2,000 years. But then there was a final period of 40 years, probation, 40 years, where the long-suffering of God waited, one generation. You'd think that invitation would get those Jews repenting, don't you? When he said that with this generation shall see the absolute destruction of this temple, this city, and the house of Israel left desolate, you'd think someone would come forward. God promised that his long-suffering was about to run out, that all the blood he had held back his judgment for from Abel in the Garden of Eden had been mounting up, accumulating. I mean, the credit balance, the, I should say the debit balance, depending on how you want to look at it. Remember, a bank's books are always opposite those that deposit there. Against the nation of Israel over time, and that judgment, that ledger balance is mounting and mounting. In Daniel, God said, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy city to finish the transgression. They would commit the last transgression. And you know what that last transgression was? They would crucify the Lord of glory. And then God would bring upon them all the vengeance deserving from Abel to the Son of God. That was certain judgment. It was so certain, Jesus Christ said, there's a greater chance of heaven and earth passing away than that this judgment not coming to pass on this generation. Please hear me, brethren. This is simple. If you can remember one important thing, the book is entitled Hebrews. If a Jew had received the knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus and went back, he's making the blood of a goat more important than the blood of the Son of God. He's making that old covenant with all its dead, pitiful ritual greater than what Jesus Christ instituted, and he's despising the spirit of grace, which was the great blessing of the new covenant. Remember all those prophecies in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit upon Israel? The spirit of supplication will be poured out upon the Jews? That great blessing of the covenant, when you said, I don't want the new covenant, I'm going back to the old, guess what you were saying to the Spirit of God? I don't need him. Here's how Paul characterizes the sin of verse 26. Look at verse 29. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? If you deny Christ and go back to the old covenant, you are just trampling Jesus under your feet. You are aligning yourself with the murderers of the Son of God because it was the Jews that put Jesus Christ to death religiously. This sin, whatever it is, is trampling underfoot the Son of God. When you sin, brethren, by not training your children in the way they should go, you have not, by any passage in Scripture, trampled underfoot the Son of God. You have sinned, but you haven't trampled him underfoot. There's still sacrifice remaining for you. If you fall on your knees and confess that sin, 
that Son of God will forgive you your sin. He trods underfoot the Son of God. He counts the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. An unholy thing is a common thing, a despicable thing if it's not holy. The, the blood of a goat becomes more important than the blood of the Son of God if you apostatize from Christianity back to Judaism. I mean, do you see that point clearly? The, the book has been, Jesus is quite a bit better than a goat. To go back to the goats is to count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. These people had sat at the Lord's Supper and they knew. They had heard the knowledge of the truth about the blood of Jesus Christ. Third thing, you've done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace was that great blessing God gave in the new covenant. Jesus said in John chapter 7, no one had had the Spirit like He was going to give it until He was glorified. In Acts chapter 2, that Spirit was poured out. He is the seal and the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And if you depart from Christianity back into Judaism, you say, I don't need the Spirit. You despise the Spirit of grace, that great blessing of God Himself dwelling in us and with us in the form of the Holy Comforter, the replacement for Jesus Christ who is now in heaven. To go back was to despise that Spirit of grace. That is the sin under consideration. Listen, when you sin, you quench or you grieve the Holy Ghost, but you don't despise Him in the way this passage is describing. You don't count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. You thank God for it that it is a holy thing that's able to wash you from your sins. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. This is the contrast that Paul develops again from the Old Testament. Remember, he did that in Hebrews chapter 2. For if every transgression received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect? The comparison of God's severity of judgment under the old and the new. You go to chapter 12, see that you refuse not him that speaketh from heaven. For if they escape not from him who spake on earth, how shall we escape? Much more shall not we escape if we neglect him that speaketh from heaven. That comparison. Now what is the sin described here? It'll help shed light on it again on what sin is under consideration. He that despised Moses' law. This is very important. You're a woman. You've had a female child. You've had a girl, a daughter. Instead of waiting the required 80 days, on the 75th day while you're still unclean, you come and offer a sacrifice to God. Was that a capital punishment punished by death? You accuse your wife of being a whore. She's taken to the priest, and proof is given that she's not. Are you punished with death? You're fined and whipped. Remember, there were beatings in the Old Testament. There were fines in the Old Testament. Not everyone that sinned against the law of Moses died. The only ones that died against the law of Moses were either those that committed capital crimes, like murder, or those that departed from Moses' religion to worship another god. Look at Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, and I want you to remember these words. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Look at Deuteronomy 13. 
Verse 6. If thy brother, Deuteronomy 13, 6, if thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thy hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and all Israel shall hear and fear, and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Notice, there was to be no mercy, no pity, no sparing, and you were to put your hands upon them. Why? Because they sought to turn people away from the Lord their God. If they shall fall away, Exhort one another, lest ye be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin in departing from the living God. Do you recognize the phrases I'm quoting back to you right now from the book of Hebrews? The message in the book of Hebrews is departing from the worship of God to go back to a false system of religion. You say, I thought the Old Testament was God's religion. It was until 30 A.D., but no longer. It had been set aside. It was blown away. It was shaken away. And there's a new kingdom given and a new religion given. And it was that departing or turning away from God that was to receive no mercy. That's despising Moses' law. If we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. That is the truth of the gospel. If we sin against it, Hebrews, by going back to Judaism, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. There is no mercy. It's inescape. The judgment of God is inescapable. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Who were the adversaries? What adversaries? The murderers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall come and miserably destroy those murderers. The adversaries of the Lord Jesus Christ that he promised determined judgment upon them. Those that apostatized would be under the same judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and come of the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing and done despite to the Spirit of grace? Obviously, much greater judgment. Listen, what happened in the Old Testament? You put your hand on their heads and you stone them to death. That was a nice way to go. You say it sounds a whole lot rougher than a gas chamber. Oh, it was. It was. But it was a whole lot easier than starving in a city over three and a half years and watching your wife eat your children and being left in utter terror and fighting inside that city. I can't just... 
listen, I've preached before, and you know where you can read about it. It was the most terrible ordeal that people ever went through. Jesus Christ said, Then shall be great tribulation such as the world had never seen. They definitely were judged with a judgment far greater than Moses. Verse 30, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense. Now, why did Jesus Christ say that all the vengeance described in the Old Testament would be fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem? He said that so that when you read Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, you'd know what judgment was under consideration. Jesus said, These be the days of vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the first part of that verse comes from Deuteronomy 32, 35. The second part comes from Deuteronomy 32, 36. The Lord shall judge his people. And what judgment are we talking about? The Lord judged his people. Because Jesus Christ came unto his own, and his own received him not. When it says his own and his own received him not, who are his own? Are you going to run that to God's elect? God's elect received Jesus Christ, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. But he came to the Jewish nation. He was a minister to the circumcision, and they rejected him. The Lord shall judge his people, and did he ever do it? He wept over that city of Jerusalem. We don't have time this morning to turn to Luke 19, Luke 21, Matthew 23, and see Jesus Christ weeping over that city that was his city, that was his nation, and appealing to those people to repent for the judgment he was about to bring upon them within the generation. And he told the women of that city, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children because there was vengeance coming. These be the days of vengeance. I can't, there's so many passages in the New Testament. If anybody had ever read anything that Jesus Christ said, practically, they'd understand Hebrews. Jesus taught the same message Paul here is teaching because Jesus was a messenger to the circumcision and Paul for this book was a messenger to the circumcision. Their messages line right up. Certain judgment is coming on the Hebrew nation if you reject the Son of God. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So much could be said about that verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. David once chose to fall into the hands of the living God. Look at 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24. David sinned against the Lord in numbering Israel. David's crime with Bathsheba wasn't the only one he committed. Another great one he committed was when he numbered Israel. And God came to Israel and gave him three wishes. Look at the three wishes. They're found in 2 Samuel 24, verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land. There's a wish. Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? There's another wish. Or there be three days pestilence in thy land. 
Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. Who was that him? God was granting David three wishes. Not a very pleasant choice. Now look at David's answer in verse 14. David said unto Gad, I'm in a great strait. I don't blame him. I'm in a great dilemma. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. He rules out the first one saying, that's just too long. He rules out the second one saying, I'd rather have it be God than the Philistines. So he's left with the three days of pestilence. Verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 men. David said, The Lord's mercies are great. I'll fall into the hands of the Lord. 70,000 men were cut off because of David's sin. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And brethren, what David did was nothing compared to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a most fearful thing, and I wish to God there was more zeal on your parts to read, and I would show you what to read so that you wouldn't have to, so you wouldn't have to stumble through a bunch of froth by Josephus, who was a Jew, but who was also under the employment of Titus Caesar, who became Caesar, who witnessed and took a daily account of the destruction of Jerusalem and just read it and see the word of God confirmed sometimes word for word by a Jew who didn't believe the New Testament record of Jesus Christ. It is the most astounding fulfillment of prophecy that you can ever read. I'd like you to see that, to see that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is Paul's exhortation, verses 26 through 31. Put it all together. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Let us exhort one another in so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin and if we apostatize, if we don't hold fast the profession of our faith, but run back into Judaism, there is a certain judgment and fiery indignation that's coming upon this nation, and it's fast approaching, and the signs of it are now visible, in the which God will pour out vengeance upon this nation and judge His people according to His promise. That is so plain. If you were a Hebrew, you'd be shaking in your boots if you had a sincere soul. Because, listen, Jesus said... It'll come on this generation maybe 20, maybe 30, maybe 35 years before this was written. Do you know when this had to be written? Go read the life of Paul. This had to be written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord shall judge His people, and that vengeance that is described as vengeance from Deuteronomy 32, which is national vengeance for rejecting God. Verse 32, But... He's concluding his powerful exhortation. He moves to another approach. Verse 32 through 35 contain this second approach. But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. But if you latch onto the words in this book, it is so simple. After ye were illuminated. Where does that come from? What word is like that? 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once in... Do you see it, brethren? You cannot make these people, God's children, who were once enlightened or illuminated, and go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 and make it hypocrites that were never enlightened or illuminated. It's the same group of people, once enlightened, called to remembrance the former days in which ye were illuminated, once enlightened. That means it's something that took place in the past. You were blessed with an understanding of the truth. You received the knowledge of the truth. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Paul's appealing to them, go back to the very beginning. Remember when you heard the gospel maybe preached by Peter at Pentecost? That was 3,000 Jews converted, 5,000 the next day. Remember when you first heard the truth of the gospel and you said, men and brethren, what shall we do? I mean, they jumped in with zeal and believed the gospel and were baptized, it tells us. Thousands of Jews baptized, their bodies washed with pure water. They received the knowledge of the truth. It says they continued in the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the doctrine of the apostles. They became a church. Think about those days, brethren. Remember how you were persecuted back then, that great fight of afflictions? Let's go read about it. Acts chapter 8. Very quickly. Acts chapter 8. Remember Stephen was stoned to death in chapter 7. That's a great fight of affliction, wouldn't you say? Would you consider that affliction? If you were stoned to death? What if he was a close friend? What if he was your husband? What if he was your father? Verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a slight persecution. There was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Guess who made up the membership of the church at Jerusalem? Gentiles or Hebrews? There was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere, preaching the word. Saul made havoc of the church. There was a great persecution. And Paul right here is asking them, remember that. Remember when you first heard the truth and you were persecuted and you took it well. Look at verse 33. Partly, whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. Please see the type of trouble the Hebrews endured after their conversion. They became a gazing stock by reproach and affliction. First of all, by reproach. They were ridiculed. Those that followed Jesus of Nazareth were ridiculed because they were giving up temple worship. Do you remember that glorious thing called the temple? And the, the priesthood of the, of the tribe of Levi and the sacrifices and the glory and splendor of that great carnal system of religion? And here they are, sitting over here in some upper room, some small little group, worshiping Jesus of Nazareth. They were ridiculed by the Jews. Ridicule. Listen, I don't know of a single Pharisee that's believed on him. But the scribes think it's a joke. 
They were ridiculed. You're following fishermen who are trying to build a following for themselves. As the apostles preached, can you imagine the reproaches? Now, very specific here, their fight of affliction. They were made a gazing stock, a laughing stock. People looked at them and laughed. First of all, by the way of reproach, they were called names. Second of all, look what's happened to you since you believe the gospel. Things had not got better. Psalm 1 had not happened yet. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Listen, this was a time of judgment and great tribulation upon these Jews that were believing. Everything was falling apart. Family members were turning against them. Jesus had promised, promised that, hadn't he? Some of them were giving their lives. They were losing their possessions. So they became a gazing stock and a laughing stock through reproaches and afflictions. And also, they became a gazing stock by being related to people who were having that happen to them. That's what verse 33 is teaching. And partly, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used, you realize these two things personally, and you were associated with others who had these things happen to them. So by both means, they suffered great affliction. Verse 34, for ye had compassion. Here's, here's how they became companions of other gazing stocks. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. These Hebrews, when Paul was in prison, remember he was in prison in Caesarea for two years after he was taken captive by the Jews, before he went to Rome. He dwelt in his own place, and people could come and visit with him. They took care of him. And while they did that, they became companions of Paul. And because they were companions of Paul, guess what happened to them? They were judged for it. They not only gave up their possessions for Paul's benefit, but they also had their possessions taken away by being a companion of Paul because the Jews hated him. A little rabbit here. This is the first time where Paul slides in who's talking. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds. Now that wouldn't mean a thing unless they knew who had been in bonds. Notice, this is Hebrews chapter 10. Brethren, a Hebrew that was going to go back wouldn't have read this far because he has made too many comparisons between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and ridiculed the Old Covenant. Remember, this is an anonymous letter. just starts out, no indication of who's writing it. Not even it, until you get to the very end would a Christian saint know who was writing this letter if you had not been told when it was put in your hands. And if you were giving this letter to a Jewish family that had professed Christ and was about to go back, would you tell them Paul wrote it? Anyone that favored the Judaistic system of religion hated Paul. You would not tell them. You would give them the letter, like giving someone a tape. I want you to listen to this tape. Well, who's preaching? I don't want to tell you yet. Just listen to it. You've never done that? You've never done anything like that? Some brother this week who... Oh, he's not here this morning. Was talking to a Catholic and refused to tell her that he was a Baptist for a while in order to have a an agreeable discussion with her. A brother called me yesterday and told me about meeting this Catholic woman and having a discussion about religion with her and holding back the fact that he was a Baptist until they had reached a point of division. Because once you tell a Catholic that you're a Baptist, if they're a Catholic that's knowledgeable at all, they know Catholics and Baptists are like oil and water. They don't go together well. Catholics don't listen to Baptists readily. 
Paul basically does the same thing. He's, he's sliding himself in here in verse 34 as he mentions their compassion of him. His appeal in these four verses is this. Do you remember when you first heard the truth, the zeal they had? Why, those men in the day of Pentecost just jumped right up and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 2, verse 41, verse 42. Now he says in verse 35, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Remember what you did before. Remember what you've already been through. Is it going to be for nothing? Are you just going to fall away? Don't cast it away. You can do it. You've done it before. The reasoning here is just great to see. and It's a good illustration for how we should reason. You made a great start. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Don't stop what you've started. You began well. Continue out. Finish well. Because it has a great recompense of reward. Holding fast to your profession of faith and casting not away your confidence is the evidence of eternal life. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Paul here is shifting from a negative warning about the destruction that's coming upon the Jewish nation to a positive exhortation. Don't cast away your confidence. You've done it before. You can do it again. Because if you will hold fast your confidence, it has a great recompense of reward. God has a great reward that is waiting out there for those that hold fast their faith. Hebrews 3 and verse 6, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? We are part of Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Notice how these verses are tied together. The evidence of eternal life, the evidence of being one of Christ's, is holding fast your initial confidence in the gospel. Colossians chapter 1 is the clearest statement of it all. The only evidence of having been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross is if we are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. That is the evidence. And here Paul is now appealing to that fact. Don't cast away the confidence with which you began, but hold your confidence that you had in the beginning steadfast to the end, tying right back into chapter 3. Notice the context. Cast not away therefore your confidence. What were these group of people in danger of doing? Casting away their confidence. Giving up their profession of faith that they made in the beginning when they were illuminated. That is the context. That is what the word sin means in verse 26. For if we sin, if we cast away our confidence and go back, if we ignore all the illumination God's given us, if we reject the reception of the knowledge of the truth, Verses 36 through 39, having introduced that great recompense of reward in verse 35, he now calls it the promise of God in verse 36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. I'm running out of time, but if you'll remember in Hebrews chapter 6, 
verses 4 through 8 is that warning. It is impossible if you fall away after having been enlightened and having tasted the Holy Ghost, if you fall away, you crucify to yourselves the Son of God afresh, and certain judgment and cursing is awaiting you. And immediately after that, for the next till the end of the chapter, Paul teaches that God has given an anchor for our souls in the promise of eternal inheritance, which promise we might have confidence of if we diligently, with patience, wait till the end. And that's exactly what he's saying right here. For ye have need of patience. Remember, Abraham had need of patience to obtain the promises. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Look at Hebrews 6 just briefly. Hebrews chapter 6. Look at verse 11. Hebrews 6 and verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then it goes on to describe the promise of eternal inheritance through the immutability of God's counsel and His oath. Paul's appealing to it again in Hebrews chapter 10. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Brethren, God sometimes sets forth eternal life and heaven as a recompense of reward for those that will patiently endure. You don't patiently endure in order to get it. God's already guaranteed it for you. But your only evidence of getting it is patient endurance. And a great motivation for patiently enduring is of that promise that He's holding out before us. Remember all the passages in Revelation 2 and 3 that I showed you? He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. He that endureth to the end and overcometh, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Well, God's not going to blot the name of any one of his elect children out of the book of life. He's stating an existing fact as motivation to hang in there. Just what he's doing right here. Verse 37, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. This coming here in verse 37 is Paul's shifting forward in time to the second coming of Christ, the promise that they're to receive upon faithful and diligent endurance. Yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. But he's tarrying at the time. That's why patience is required. Paul's little while is a little while from God's perspective, but not from theirs because he just finished exhorting them to patience. If he was just about to come, there'd be no need for patience. But it's patient enduring. Now the just shall live by faith. What is faith? Faith is strong confidence in the promises of God. Faith is strong confidence in the promises of God resulting in diligent, patient effort. The just shall live by faith. This is not the faith of Christ. This is not the faith of God. This is the faith that Paul's exhorting these men to have. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. There's that sin. For if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. If any man draw back, does that mean draw back to hell? Draw back to judgment. The just shall live by faith. 
But if some man doesn't hold fast his faith and he draws back into his old way of religion, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. What does the word perdition mean? Judgment. Simply, judgment. The perdition of ungodly men. You read about in the Bible. It's the judgment of ungodly men. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? And with many other words that he testified and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That was the message to the Hebrews from the day of Pentecost to the day Paul wrote this book. Save yourselves from this untoward generation because God was about to pour out his perdition, his judgment upon that generation. And if they did not believe the gospel, if they did not live by faith, but they drew back, they would be under that judgment. Paul exhorts them to live by faith. And what does he do in Hebrews chapter 11? but shows that great hall of faith, all those examples from their own religion that had lived lives of faith. And he's exhorting them, you now have a life of faith to live. You have different promises than they had, but you have a life of faith. And he exhorts them here that if they depart and draw back, if they sin against the knowledge of the truth, there's certain judgment coming. In Hebrews 11, it will be positive motivation by a whole pile of what I call scriptural biographies of Old Testament heroes that should motivate them to want to have faith and live by faith and not draw back as the men in the 11th chapter did not draw back. This book is written to Hebrews, but the warning is just as pressing upon us. And the only way the warning comes with force is to see it in its practical application in Hebrews chapter 10. We have received the knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ. If any of us depart from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and go back into some other form of religion or leave the cause of Christ or affliction or persecution or being a gazing stock is too much for us and we draw back or we turn away from the Lord, we shall be judged also. Not the destruction of Jerusalem, but the principle of privilege in, this, in the Word of God, to whom much is given, much shall be required, will bear upon us. The, the servant that knew his master's will and did it not was beaten with many stripes. That's the principle of God's Word. Those Jews had 2,000 years of God's ministering to them. Guess what? Gentiles have had about 2,000 years of ministering to them also. And now it is the second coming of Christ that approaches and an evil time before that. And may God save us from sinning against the knowledge of the truth, from turning away from God and from drawing back. And may He bless us to hold fast the confidence that we had in the beginning when we were first illuminated. Remember when we first heard the gospel? The joy that it gave us, the thrill of knowing the truth of God? Let us not depart from it. But hold fast personally and exhort one another to hold fast also. And together, let's keep the profession of our faith without wavering. And next Sunday, we'll look at all the examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11.